perhaps because it's summer, and in the bright summer skies and in the uh, clear skies of the evening, it's often a, a habit of mine to go and look up at the stars and, and look at the constellations. Unfortunately, I missed out last week the Perseid meteor shower, which I can always remember as a kid. Out at my grandparents, they would have a trailer uh, parked out at Cultus Lake, which is a few hours' drive out of Vancouver. And I'd often go there and spend summers there just looking at the stars. My uncle was a great lover of astronomy. Uh, so maybe that is what got me reading around on Wikipedia, which can kind of go down a rabbit's hole. You can end up looking at one article and clicking on another article and find three hours have gone by. But of course, it's better than watching cartoons. So I was stumbling across astronomy articles, and I, I came across an article on black holes. Now, of course, most of us will kind of know what black holes are, and of course, it's above my pay grade to explain them in any detail, but, but black holes are, um, you know, a, a, an astronomical event. And what they are is, is that uh, they're, they're black, of course, uh, and they're up in space. But what I found interesting about them, and I didn't realize, is that black holes uh, aren't just sort of a bit of blackout in space, what they are is that they're stars that have collapsed in on themselves. And so when a star, typically I think black holes, if I understand rightly, when they run out of fuel and no longer burn with brightness, the gravitational pull of a big star can start sucking everything together until all of the matter in that star gets compacted. And it gets compacted so deeply that not only is it a hunk of, of matter out in space, I mean, you could maybe see that, but it gets so compacted that its gravitational pull gets so strong it actually sucks light into itself. It's not just like a black piece of paper where it doesn't reflect light, it's where it actually sucks light of the surrounding environment. Its gravitational pull is so great that if you get closer than what's known as the event horizon, literally nothing can escape its gravitational pull and it gets sucked into a black hole. Now I mention that uh, not just because it's an interesting tidbit, but also because I was thinking along the lines of light and darkness as I was thinking about our uh, letter to the Ephesians passage today. Because we read from St. Paul talking about light and about darkness, and about how Christians are not to live in darkness, but are to live in light. And I couldn't help but think that that idea of the black hole actually explains a lot about this imagery. But what a black hole does in sucking light out of the environment in order to uh, feed itself is much like what life in darkness is a life that is lived and devoted to sucking what is good and light out of the world that you might enrich yourselves, as opposed to a bright star in which its burning fuel and its passion spreads light and spreads life to the world around. I'd like to speak today on some challenging things that Paul raises here because he talks about the, the link between fornication, which is a type of sexuality and greed, and, uh, and darkness, and about how we contrast that by living in the light. I'd like to speak to you a little bit about why Paul uh, talks about this, why it was important in his world, why it continues to speak to us today. And then I'd like to end uh, briefly at the end, uh, depending on how much I go on, uh, briefly at the end about why that imagery of light and darkness is not just a, a metaphor, but in fact speaks something uh, very challenging and also encouraging for us as modern-day Christians. Now, I know for many people, if you've read through the New Testament, once you start hearing the word Paul talking about sex, it can kind of be a trigger for you, right? I mean, I think many people, when they get uh, to reading through the Bible and they hear the nice passages about how Jesus is the good shepherd and all, and then you get into Paul talking about fornication and impurity and such, it can be a pretty hard read sometimes. I also know that when I get up as a, as a man of the cloth standing up in front of you preaching, that many of you will have grown up in churches or been in churches or maybe watched things on television in which preachers seem devoted to shaming people because of their sexual lives. 
And after all, for many, uh, many years, the church not only didn't talk about it uh, very much, but when it did, it was almost as if there's something really suspicious about sex. It's got pleasure, and of course, pleasure is a bad thing, and we don't want any of that. Uh, I remember sometimes when we, I hear preachers speaking that way, there was a newspaper writer of the last century named H.L. Mencken, and he was asked, you know, what's the definition of Puritanism? And he said, a Puritan is somebody who has the deep fear that somebody somewhere is having fun. <laughs> Churches sometimes have that reputation, don't they? Well, in order to help us understand a little bit about why Paul talks about this, I want to help you understand the backdrop of what he's writing to historically. I was listening to a podcast recently uh, between two historians. Inconveniently, both of them were named Tom, so that interview is a little difficult to follow sometimes. But Tom Wright, who is a biblical scholar and historian and also an Anglican bishop, and Tom Holland, who is an agnostic, but he's an historian of the classical antiquity world, which is to say a, a world uh, of ancient Rome and Greece and sort of around that. Tom Holland's an agnostic, but he's also a, a historian who recognizes the imprint that Christian faith has had on Western civilization in many good ways, even if he himself doesn't call himself a believer. But one of the things that struck me in this podcast, they were both talking about the life of Paul. And Tom Wright just wrote a book recently, he's written a few books on Paul, but he just written a, a shorter, easier, accessible book on Paul. And Tom Holland was talking about the effect that Paul had, and he said, to understand some of the effect Paul had, even when you evaluate his talk about sex, you need to understand about the world of pagan sexuality in the ancient world, and what it meant, and how different it is than our core expectations today. What really struck me about what Tom Holland was saying is he said, you need to understand that for a free man in the ancient world, for him, he felt the right to have sex with whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted, in whatever way he wanted. In other words, what Tom Holland was talking about is some of the core expectations we have around sexuality, even if we consider ourselves progressive, is that we expect, for example, our husband to be faithful to us. That was not an expectation that a Roman wife would have had of her husband. In fact, a Roman free man was uh, not only allowed to satisfy his sexual needs outside of marriage, it was also something in which uh, we look at this with horror, that much of what the, the sexual industry in the pagan world was run by was by slavery. In fact, almost every brothel that was uh, existing throughout ancient Rome was housed by slaves, uh, women or boys, who were bought and sold and used sexually. It was considered nothing that's really odd for a person who had sexual urges to go and use, uh, use these people as objects for use. When he talks about fornication and purity and lewdness and drunkenness, what he's probably talking about here specifically is speaking to Christian men who, being raised in this culture, thought there was nothing weird about doing this kind of thing. In fact, if you're a member of a guild, maybe you're a carpenter or a plumber or a musician, uh, often you'd have a rich patron, and that would mean that occasionally you would have a party thrown in honor of the god who is the patron of your uh, guild. And so what would you do? You'd have a big party in which drunkenness, in which worshiping the god would be acceptable. You'd drink an awful lot. And of course, the patron would make sure that slaves were available to fulfill your sexual needs. So one of the most important reasons we need to understand Paul is talking about this is because what we take for granted, no matter where we are in the spectrum about thinking about sexuality, all of us understand that there's something hor horrific about using other people objectively for our sexual needs. There's also something quite wrong about betraying uh, your wife and sleeping around. Not only is there the danger of having illegitimate children that you uh, let go and therefore are probably starve or are surrendered to a life of slavery, but bringing back sexually transmitted diseases to your wife or whoever knows what else. 
No doubt there are men in the ancient world who loved their wives and didn't do this, and no doubt there were men in the ancient world who thought, you know what, I don't want to have sex with somebody who's being forced to do so. It's not as if there were no moral people, but it is to say what was the cultural standard? Nobody really thought it was anything weird. To understand why he talks about this is really important for us. If you want to read a little bit more, um, one of the great books I can recommend, which is very accessible, is a book by Sarah Rudin, who's a classicist, uh, and she just actually just did a new translation of St. Augustine's Confessions, so she translates from the Latin. But she talks about this and about the way that St. Paul entered the ancient world and changed things in ways that we take for granted but were in fact revolutionary. Well worth the read. But you know, one of the things that's really important to understand about the scriptures is that we in the church don't consider these things simply as a dead letter. We're not just talking about what happened uh, centuries ago as if we're dissecting a corpse. What we're talking about in the scriptures is talking about a living word that continues to speak to us today. And I think what St. Paul talks about is more than just the obvious, you know, avoid drunken frat parties. Not a good idea for us to do. But most of us probably figure, okay, fair enough, I don't want to get involved in that. But why does he go on about this? And why is it something the church continues to hear, particularly because of its bad track record and it brings up, unfortunately, bad memories that many people may have of being treated poorly by the church? I'd like to say that one of the most important reasons why St. Paul talks about this, and particularly in the context of darkness, is that I believe one of the visions that the scriptures and the Christian tradition, when it shines most brightly, does, is it talks about the importance of vulnerability and intimacy, and about how sexuality furthers a good vulnerability and intimacy, and how, danger it is, how dangerous it is we allow ourselves carelessly to be vulnerable and carelessly to be intimate. And the best way I know to describe this is to actually look at the way the scriptures talk about God's relationship to his people and particularly about Christ's relationship to his church. One of the things that you read through the Old Testament often is that it's interesting that when God gives laws to his people, you might think that God is portrayed as a sort of heavenly bureaucrat. Here's the law, don't transgress it or you'll be in trouble. More often than not, however, when God speaks about people transgressing the law, particularly when it comes to idolatry, the language is not of a bureaucrat who is uh, sort of making his files right. Instead, it uses the language of a husband who has been betrayed. When we read about how uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians, it's a terrible read when you read Lamentations, but one of the striking things that it says there is, Jerusalem has been abandoned by all her lovers. In other words, Jerusalem looked for protection to all these different gods and idols, and these gods and idols used her and did not, in fact, protect her. But I am your husband, and so what does God do? He goes to Babylon and takes this woman who betrayed him and brings her back. When we look at Jesus' ministry, it's interesting, particularly in the Gospel of John, but throughout the Gospels, how often Jesus uses the language of intimacy that we usually reserve for sex. He talks about himself as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. His first um, miracle was at Cana in Galilee, where he goes to a wedding and makes wine out of water. When Jesus speaks about uh, his people, he speaks in intimate terms. Think of that, how scandalous it was when Jesus at the house of the Pharisees is eating amongst these staid religious figures and a woman comes in, pours alabaster perfume on his feet, washes his feet with her hair, and they are absolutely scandalized. And I don't think Jesus ever uh, accrued suspicions that he was abusing people sexually. I think instead, people were shocked at the intimacy of this. And if you think about yourself, if a woman did this in front of you and did this for me, 
you would be shocked as well at how intimate this was. Why? Because it seemed like this is the kind of thing that is shared as a close bond between two people and not as a public spectacle. We read uh, through St. Paul. St. Paul talks about Christ as the husband and church as the bride. And of course, we get to the book of Revelation and we find, what do we see? A vision of the new Jerusalem descending from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. The language of intimacy is shot through all of the scriptures and through Jesus' teaching about himself and his relationship to his people. Even in the passage we had today from the gospel where Jesus speaks about communion, think about how odd his words are. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's saying, to partake in my body. How odd that is. Not only gross and weird for a person who hasn't heard, it sounds cannibalistic, but it also seems incredibly intimate. When would I ever say that somebody shares in my body? It's not the kind of language I would use, but if I ever did, the only time I would talk about it is about the relationship I have with my wife. There is an intimacy there that is not for other people. It is an intimacy of marriage, but also of sexuality. And of course, of my children, who are my flesh and blood that are the fruits of the sexuality I share with my wife. When we look at that, we begin to realize that one of the things that Jesus stresses is his relationship to his people. He stresses himself not as the rule giver, but as the person who pursues and loves his people with an intimacy that requires a sense of vulnerability in return. One of the deepest things that affects people in their relationship to God is to understand that in Jesus we have someone who knows us personally, who knows us intimately through and through, and is fully and absolutely committed to our well-being. Some of the deepest human longings we have is the desire to be fully known and the desire to be fully loved. We speak about Jesus Christ laying down his life for his sheep. He's talking about a relationship of intimacy that requires from us a vulnerability. A vulnerability that says, Jesus, I know you know me, and I do not want to hide anything from you. That's why we start our service with a confession. I refuse to hide anything from you, God, because I want you to know me through and through. And I do that because I anticipate that your love will draw me closer and closer the more I allow you to do it. How good and right it is to feel the closeness we have with God, someone who loves us and knows us and is committed to our well-being. And we speak about that, and it's interesting that when we speak about this, St. Paul doesn't just talk about Jesus' relationship to us, but uses it as a model to talk about marital relations. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture happens right after the passage we read today. And so I'm going to read a portion of it to help you understand what I mean by how uh, Jesus is uh, speaking about intimacy as a reflection of our intimate relations. And this is in chapter 5, verse 25. Paul writes this, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. Beautiful. What does it give us the image? Christ's love for his church is exactly what your relationship to your wife should look like. Does your wife, when she looks at you, say, you are a man who knows me well and is just as committed to my well-being as Jesus Christ is committed to his church? How beautiful that is. And it's not just sexuality. It's the entire marital relationship. But sexuality is a part of it. One of the greatest challenges uh, I think many people have in getting married is that when we view the other person we're married to, and to view their sexuality is to begin to view sexuality as a gift you give to your spouse 
and not something you take from them. How difficult it is to get this, uh, but at the same time to begin to understand that you have an opportunity in your most intimate relationship, both in sexuality and in your domestic relationship, to begin seeing your life as an opportunity to build the other person up by genuinely knowing them well enough to know what their needs are and loving them deeply enough to commit yourself not just to getting pleasure from them, but to commit yourself deeply enough to ensure that you do what is necessary to help them grow. With that understanding of gift, of knowledge, of intimacy and vulnerability, I think it's particularly pertinent what Paul says about fornication. Because he's not, I think, intending to shame everyone for their sexual life or to say pleasure is bad, pleasure is fine. Instead, what I think he raises us a question to ask is, how can you have this level of vulnerability and intimacy when you barely know a person? One of the biggest challenges I think our culture has in, in sort of getting away from the, some of the strictures and, 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 and shaming that the church unfortunately helped create in our culture is that we've often gone in the opposite way in which we tend to think of sexuality as simply another appetite like anything else. We stress consent, which is of course extraordinarily important. Without consent, sexuality is a horrible crime. But we talk about consent as if that's all we need instead of asking ourselves, what is our sexuality for? St. Paul gives us an image of sexuality that talks about sexuality as something that in fact encourages, blesses, and builds another person up. It helps us live more according to the image of Christ. And that's particularly something that can happen when you know a person and are highly committed to their well-being. I mean, that's what marriage is supposed to be. I did a, a marriage service just yesterday, and every time I hear those vows, I'm impressed. I will love you. I will honor you. And, and then when you exchange the ring with all that I have and all that I am, I honor you in the name of God. We obviously fall short in that, but is that what we're doing when we approach our sexual life? Am I honoring you? Am I blessing you? Do I know you and am I committed enough to you to say what I want to do with my sexuality is not just take pleasure from you, but to give you with my whole life and self something that builds you up and makes you feel the love and the acceptance that God has for us. So to understand, again, please don't misunderstand me as if this is a lecture. Instead, what it's meant to do is to say sexuality is a wonderful gift that God gives us but to understand we're selling it short if all we talk about is its capacity for giving us pleasure. Pleasure is an important thing, but it also helps shape us, I think, if we follow God's plan to be a person who uses the pleasure we get out of intimacy to be something that builds other people up. Here's the other thing that I'd like to shift, though, from going from R rating down to PG as I close my sermon. Why is it that Paul talks about light and darkness? Why does he talk about speech and about the lewdness and, and coarse joking that's out of place and instead contrast with the Psalms and spiritual songs? And he doesn't just talk about dark and light as abstract things. I think he's echoing the very first chapters of Genesis in the creation story. Do you remember how Genesis begins where we hear that the earth was formless and void and darkness hovered over the face of the earth? But what changes to formlessness and darkness and chaos? And God said, let there be light, and it was light, and darkness fled. And we hear again, a God said, and God said, and God said. God uses a word and takes the chaos of the world and creates order, beauty, life, and abundance. Think about what happens when you give lewd talk. You know, I'm all guilty of that. I've told crass jokes before, all of us are. Or you think about some pretty girl walks by and you say to your buddy, oh, well, I'd like a piece of that. Or my wife often comments when we see a movie with Brad Pitt in it, right? <laughs> Uh, 
Now, that person may not be harmed. They didn't hear it. So I don't want to make more of a, of, a, of a joke about it than I should, or a big deal about it, but I should. But think about the implication, right? That's something I want and to take. What's different about giving a person a spiritual song, a psalm, a word of encouragement? It's something I give to build another person up. The word of God creates life, creates joy, creates order. We should live our lives in the same way. Here's the thing. Look at what St. Paul is saying to us today and ask yourself what he asks us to ask God. What do you want of me, God? What builds my wife up? What builds my children up? What builds up the members of the church? How can I use my words and my actions? How can I do these things in such a way that it resembles the God who creates light and life? Can I do it in such a way that doesn't make me draw back into the darkness, but instead feeds the better angels of my nature, that I may be an instrument of good in every relationship, whether it's a, a casual one with people that I meet from time to time, or the most intimate of relationships in family and friends. Here's our call, to live in the light and be instruments of light, because when we reflect the light of Christ, we become like little stars and little lights that bring life to the world around us.